32 counties. 32 questions. My name is Una. And I'm Andrea. And this is United, United Ireland. Ireland. Every week we take a county and dive into an issue relevant to that county and then see where in the world it brings us. This week's county, surprisingly, Leash. Leash. Or EP. We're making EP the 33rd <laughs> county. And this week's question, are festivals the ideal societies? I we say yes. Andrea says yes, and I agree. We are coming live from Electric Picnic in Strab Valley in County Leash in the Minefield area on the Ahir podcast stage. Welcome to United Ireland. So United Ireland is all about making broadcasting that doesn't pit people against each other where you're not going to hear the usual suspects and that has smart conversations uninterrupted by people playing devil's advocate or dumbing things down. Although that's <laughs> debatable for today. Have you met me? <laughs> <laughs> it's Sunday. We look at local issues and give them a global context. So it makes sense in this small field in Leash that we're asking whether or not the festival bubble is an ideal society and taking that question and running with it, imagining a utopia. What should future societies look like? What does life after capitalism look like? And how can we get there? In order to make it, you have to imagine it. So what is your version of a utopia? To discuss this, we're going to have some amazing guests to get your brains fizzing more than the entire contents of the Prosecco bar. But first, it's time for the county facts. Andrea, hit me with your leash facts. So this podcast has been really good because I'm actually such a dub that whenever I, whenever I heard that Cliffs and Mower were in Clare, I was like, stop it. I can't believe it. So every week I have to research some facts, and I'm, I'm literally like Ireland's number one fan now. Let's go. The first fact, population of Leash, 84,697. Zing. That is a growth of 20% from the 2011 census. That's wild, isn't it? Like 20% in like five years. I know it's 2019, but the last census was 2016. The population of EP is 57,500. So there's actually only like 30,000 people more in Leech than there is at this festival. Bananas. <laughs> uh, so Leech was known as the Queen's County in honor of Queen Mary, who sounds like an absolute bitch. Uh, of Tudor, she ordered the plantation of uh, English settlers into the area, and by 1601 and the Battle of Kinsale, see, historical facts, all the nobility were booted out to Munster or Connacht, leaving landless laborers to tend the new Protestants who owned the land. So literally, like, it was in bits. But particularly badly hit by the famine and crop failures, also in bits, the Queen's County was left pretty destitute and that led to a lot of tension between landlords and tenants. Around this time, Michael Davitt and Charles Stewart Parnell made their way, I feel like I'm at a leaving cert. <laughs> Around this time, Michael Davitt and Charles Stewart Parnell made their way through the county recruiting for the Land League. I did a lot of research on this, it's absolutely brilliant. The organization was set up and made up of activists, farmers, shopkeepers and clerics to work against the excessive rents being demanded by landlords throughout Ireland. Not trying to give anyone any ideas. <laughs> Maybe we'll form a Land League. Are you in? Fab. <laughs> uh, this is not so sound. You can visit Donnamore Famine Workhouse Museum. Like who? No, I'm not into it. But it's apparently a great example of the perseverance of the Irish spirit in the face of terrible hardships. Now give me some contemporary leash facts, Andrea. Okay. <laughs> now, you're going to be all the better for this fact. There's a kebab shop in Port Arlington called 
delicious kebab. <laughs> like whoever came up with that, I would raise a drink to them, or two. Kim and Kanye visit the Odeon Cinema in Port Leash on their honeymoon in Ireland, a very important fact. Leash became, oh, this is actually really good. Leash became the first place in Ireland with an African mayor when in 20, no, 2009, Port Leash elected Nigerian-born Rosami Adabari to office. Excellent. What else is going on in Leash, Andrea? Hit me. Like, the facts are coming out of me so fast and furious. That's my favorite film, by the way. Leash is home to the most secure building in the county, country. Do you know what it is? Port Leash Prison. Does anybody know what the second most secure complex in Ireland is? I'll give you a clue. It's in Sandyford. That's a crap clue. I was like, <laughs> what's in Sandyford? Nothing. It's the central bank's currency center. It's where they make the money. It's just on the Sandyford Road. Bilali. We make the money here. Uh, just opposite the Maxwell there on the, the petrol station. If anybody wants to hang around looking suspicious, alerting the army who, got, who guards that building. So there you go. Last week we did a Carlo episode and I found out that Boris is in Carlo. Guess what's in Leash? Boris and Osroy. <laughs> Not in Carlo. <laughs> that is confusing, but also correct. But we're also going to give you some EP facts, some electric picnic facts, considering that it is the 33rd county within uh, Leash. The first electric picnic was in 2004, had a capacity of 10,000, very different to today. Uh, the capacity today is 57,200. 30,000 more than leash. It's less. <laughs> less. 2,500 corn dogs are sold at Electric Picnic every year. Sorry, hang on. Hands up if you've ever had a corn dog. Oh, actually, some people have. Like, where are they sold? I've never, the seen, a, I've never seen a corn so dog. It's like I'm a sorry. guy making them to order. You batter the sausage with the corn batter. They're delicious. Three euro, I would recommend. Very decent hand snack. In 2015, you know the way you can do the, um, the cup exchange to get money back? In 2015, the biggest number of cups brought back for a refund in one go by one person was 420. That's a lot of 20 cents. <laughs> uh, there are 1,200 portaloos on site, but somehow still never enough. The electricity used at Electric Picnic could power households of 40,000 people for one year. And there is only one Bonnie Tyler. I was holding out for a hero last night. Turn around. <laughs> so every week on United Ireland, we have a county rep who is passionate about the county uh, to deliver us uh, their reason why their county trumps all. And so this week, uh, it also kind of allows us to kind of deflect any accusations that we are part of the Dublin media elite, um, which is very, very useful. And um, these people enlighten us with their local knowledge. For Leash, we are delighted to welcome to the stage our proud county reps, local legend Mary White and her uh, Jackie Turncoat son, director of the Dublin Theatre Festival, Willie White. Welcome to the stage. Now, Mary, keep your mi uh, uh, mouth close to the mic there. Mary, where do you live and where, you're fr where are you from and where do you live? I live in Aberdeen. I'm going to turn those on. I'm from Port Leash. Sorry, I'm 
from poetry originally, but I am living in Abbey Gates for the last 50 years. Right. And what do you think makes Leash the ultimate and the best Irish county? Well, for many reasons. Andrea gave you Ireland in a different, Abbey gave you Leash in a very different era. Leash is centrally located, so it's very easy accessible. And the stats that she gave you about the increase in the population, other people think like us that it is a great place to live and work. Um, we have a great infrastructure, road and rail. We have great schools. Everything to make life living in Leash is all there. We have, and we send some of our best crop up to up to Dublin. We have the two ladies from Clonesley, uh, Evelyn Cusick and Eileen Dunn. We have Seamus O'Rourke. Sean O'Rourke, we've sent you the best of, of our crop up to the big city. Yeah, and of course, <laughs> and uh, they have survived. Doreen yeah. uh, Allen from Cullahill as well. Yeah, from County Leash and the, the O'Connell dynasty, which is very much resident and active in the community. We also have a very caring society. Um, we have the population increase is 30,000. So it's, it's expected to increase. The population have electric picnic, essentially. Yes, since, since, since the 1990s, it has increased by 30,000. And one in every six people living in Leash is not from Leash. So that tells you it's a place people choose to live in. And another statistic, people have moved down. There's been a lot of re resurgence in the small towns because people can't afford to buy property in Dublin, so they have moved down the country. And almost Leash County Council did a commuter survey in 2017, and just shy of 12,000 people commute every day out of County Leash to work. So that's a. So my sister, mum's daughter, who works in Dublin but has moved back to Abbey Leach and used to be in Abbey Leach, priced out of Dublin. It's great for the schools because the, you know they now have a larger student body, and uh, give them really renews the towns because there was a lot of drift over the years. Abbey Leach has always been. Uh, everybody says when you're from Abbey Leach, oh lovely town, Morrissey's. It is a good looking town compared to some other ones in the county that I won't mention. Uh, but it's a nice place to live. Mary, what do you think are the biggest issues that Leash is facing? What are the basic issues they're facing? Well, I suppose with the population exploding, where we have the accommodation to, uh, you know, to provide housing, um, we have um, three direct provision centres in um, County Leash, um, and I'm very happy to say, while some people say it's not ideal to have immigrants or people seeking asylum in direct provision, they say the welcome that they have got in County Leash has been second to none. They feel very safe, which I suppose is a great endorsement of the type of people we are in Leash. We're very friendly, um, and uh, that is widely acknowledged that we're very friendly. And as I say, there's a great infrastructure. There's playgrounds, libraries, um, great sense of volunteerism. We've only to see that from all the festivals that have been on for the last number of weeks. So we're, we're very caring people. We still have our hospital, thankfully. And um, I know you mentioned the prison. We have two prisons where we have adequate childcare facilities and there's plenty for the young and the old to do. Willie, being somebody who left the county and you live in, in Phibsborough now, um, what are the things that you miss about um, growing up here or the county Space. itself? 
you know, space. Um, and like the street that I live in, Finsborough, there are no kids the same age as our kids. So something that, you know, like the, the park and Abbey Leagues are just rambling around the place in the open air. Every time the kids go down to uh, Mum's house or to their grandparents in Wexford, they just kind of go feral. Because they're not, I mean, like we have a little bit of a back garden, but they never go into it. So it's, there's certainly that, the open air and space. Phoenix Park is there, but it's a little bit further down North Circular Road. Mum is actually an activist as well, I should say. Uh, she might use that word to describe herself, but she was instrumental in saving the bog in Abbey Leagues. Uh, which was sold by the Devessies to Bordenamon and they wanted to start milling peat from it. So somebody parked a JCB in front of the gate that accidentally broke down. Uh, <laughs> and now the bog is lovely and they, have, they, they, they put a walkway through it and, um, and it's brilliant. But what are the, we were talking about the lavender. It's, it's flourishing it's there. It's in bloom at the moment and it's absolutely magnificent. We have, we, uh, having started off as enemies with Bordenamona, we're now best friends and we have a 50 year lease for um, a euro a year. And the, bo the bog has been totally restored, so it has, and it, is, it won a prize for the best environmental project in Europe wow. in 2017. Yeah. Mary, before, before, um, before we, we, we bid you adieu, um, why was it so important for you to save that bog? Because of, we want to protect all the rare species that are in the bog. And they thought initially, because the bog had been drained, that it wouldn't regenerate, but it regenerated beyond belief. And they have identified, it is fantastic. Talk about climate change. We have the biggest carbon sink, I think. In and bogs <laughs> are really good at holding CO2. Yes, yeah. yes, they are, they are. And it is a great educational project. We, we uh, bring children from schools and not alone the children, lots of adults have been educated on the importance of preserving nature all around us. Amazing. So. Give it up for Mary White and Willie White. Thank you so much. <laughs> Projects like that are part of the future societies we're going to be discussing. Thank you so much. Um, this question of the week that we're talking about, about festivals being the perfect society, so we're going to have to be talking about these utopias that we envisage, uh, what do we need and how do we get there? And to talk about those things, we have three riveting thinkers to join us. First off, please welcome to the stage, People for Profit TD, Breed Smith. <laughs> Next up, we have the lovely Green Party candidate, Saoirse McHugh. <laughs> And to complete our panel, the Adidas Don, the redhead irregular, one half of Mango Math Man, it's Mango! Don't sit in here. Before we go on, can we all have snaps for Mango set last night? Nice girls. Whatever. So, this idea of imagining a utopia, it's kind of a wild thing to think of, but everything starts with imagination. Um, we're gonna talk about the top down first because we know that the bottom up is what changes everything in terms of people power and the social revolution we've had in, had in Ireland for the past five years. But this government appears to be kind of a weird one because it's kind of ineffectual in many ways, but it shows how the economy can keep growing in some ways, but the reality on the ground for a lot of people's day to day is much harder. So I want to uh, talk to Breed first in terms of we break down these systems to rebuild them. 
what do you think, Freed, is the fundamental ideological flaw of this government? Uh, well, before I start on them, and don't get me started <laughs> on them, uh, on the question of utopian picnics, I'd have one problem, and that's port I'm not very fond of them, and I wouldn't like to live in a future society where we relied on them. Um, but yeah, I, I think the, um, the contrast between what you sense at a picnic like this, the sort of reach that you get into, there's something very deep and fundamental in being together, in shared joy, in having the same spirit and the same collective uh, equality, that that contrasts very starkly with what the government's agenda is all about. Because really, when you step back one bit and look at what's going on, there's two different societies in Ireland. There's one section of society that's pampered, that gets you know tax breaks, money thrown at it, all sorts of uh, opportunities to grow and develop. And then there's the other section that's completely isolated through homelessness, a lack of health service, and all the rest of it. And when you ask me the question, Una, what's the fundamental difference, I think that is that they are driven uh, in their ideology by the need for profit to be at the heart of everything. And unless something is making money, then it doesn't work, it doesn't happen for them. Whereas we can see by the sort of reach that people have deep into, you know, there's a deep psychic sense in human beings to be collective, to be equal, to be together. And we can see other possibilities, but you, in order to get to that, you have to finish that idea that nothing happens unless it's driven by profit. And how we get beyond that is a big challenge. But I believe we can do it because most of us are not driven by profit, but the system is. Mm. And so when you see kids outside the UN this week with Greta Thunberg shouting system change, not climate change, I think that that's what it means. It's not just about whether we use, um, uh, it is about whether we use alternative forms of energy and stop taking oil and gas out of the ground, but it's also having an alternative form of vision for society, which is about looking after human need, not human greed. And uh, I think that this government's just not capable of even thinking about that. It's not even that they don't do it, they can't even think about that. When we talk about um, ideologies, and I was writing about this recently, that Fine Gael do a certain thing where they try to pretend that there isn't an ideology there. And even there was one of the most profound statements um, in a radio interview a few months ago when Owen Murphy was on the radio and he was, I think it was on Sean O'Rourke and he was being asked about, you know, the housing crisis and, um, you know, different kind of ideologies that may drive that. And he, one of his answers was, well, that would be an ideological question. That would be an ideological question. As if it's saying, you know, that would be an ecumenical matter and refusing to engage with the ide ideology he very personally, as a terrible minister, um, I is perpetrating. But do you see that when you're in the Dáil, that are people kind of, is the, is the government, particularly the Fine Gael aspect of the government, trying to drive a political, or per a particular ideology, or do they not even think that they're being driven by it? Well, they like to use that against you. Like if, if I'm arguing, like for example, what I've been working on really hard in the last year is getting the Climate Emergency Measures Bill passed to stop drilling for oil and gas. And every time I put up an argument about it, the Taoiseach will always say, Deputy, you're ideological. And Taoiseach, you're not. <coughs> Do you know, they, they, when they talk about ideology, they try to associate the word as if it's a nasty association with alternatives, with the left, with people who think like us. Whereas they don't see that their ideology is actually one that's associated with 
you know, um, greed, with profit, with a very right-wing agenda, because they're trying to, and you can see this over repeal and same-sex marriage, they're trying to swim in the middle course, which makes them look liberal on the social issues, but on the fundamental uh, financial and political issues, they're extremely conservative and one-sided. So this is why they use the term ideological against us, me, Saoirse, and others, uh, but don't put themselves in that bracket. So I think we have to throw it right back at them and say they're no different than um, you know, the bankers or the developers who just think about the dollars and the money and the rate of profit rather than the human uh, need and the human misery and the human concern that lies behind all their decisions. I suppose one of the reasons that neoliberal politicians were so enthusiastic about getting on board with repeal and marriage equality was there was no economic opposition to those policies. There's no market opposition to, if, if anything, for like marriage equality, it creates more business for people. Um, but going into the urban, uh, like into the city space and trying to imagine how we can fix our cities, um, Mango, what, what do you think is, is you're a very political, naturally political dude. <laughs> yeah. You're an artist. You're, a a, you're, you're existing in a city that a lot of people think is broken, um, the capital of this country. What, what kind of concerns you about existing in Dublin as an artist right now amongst your peers? I think, and what Breed is saying is that we as artists, like art takes a long time to do and there's a lot of kind of like jobs you'll have to do on the side because we don't value art as much anymore. Like you stream my single on Spotify, I get 0 0.007 cents. Do you know what I mean? So to live in a city that is pushing out people with real jobs in the very quotas, like we're on the bones of our arse. And when you take the gut out of Ireland and like I'm seeing artists just like give up, just they, they can't do it anymore. Or they're back living with their mams and like these are incredible thinkers and people who should be celebrated. But if it doesn't make a book, who gives a fuck? Do you know what I mean? So I, I, I don't even know what to say. Like even I, I know artists trying to get like spaces just to create in their studios. And they can't because all the warehouses in town are going down. Do you know what I mean? I don't want to work in a fucking hotel. And that's, uh, that's, you know, seems to be the only thing in Dublin that you should be getting into right now. But like I always think we give out about all the hotels that are popping up and we're like, but it's the hotel manager's job to manage a hotel, build a hotel, 100%, make money. 100%. But whose job is it to replace the cultural institutions that they're tearing down? Like, why is it not being done? Like, we're literally losing clubs, we're losing theatres, we're losing everything for a hotel. Yeah. That's my question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, like, yeah, it's not the fault of guys who own hotels. If you, got a if you own a hotel, you've got to make money. Absolutely, but you shouldn't be allowed to build every one of them. Like, I'm living up by the canal of Hortobello, and like me and my girlfriend, we went through just from uh, Gaze Bar all the way up that road. Just the amount of like short term leases and the amount of things getting knocked down, and just like there's no space anymore for, for people to do. Like, what me and Matman do, we couldn't have done that without dirty warehouse raves or you know nightclubs and stuff like that the people we know the people that book us the people that we are friends for for life like there's a lot of stuff that you're talking about in the last podcast that's so crucial and to see it just get wiped out like yeah, the last podcast was clubbing is culture yeah which it is like to see all that get wiped out it's it's heartbreaking it's infuriating and i couldn't understand people going to barcelona or lisbon or to 
you know, the middle of the country or whatever. I couldn't understand it, but like, I don't know, I just can't give up. That's why I didn't leave during the recession. Because I love it here and I shouldn't be forced to move because you don't deem me valuable. Do you know what I mean? And I ain't gonna live in no fucking co-living tenement bullshit either. Do you know what I mean? I'm not gonna live in that. Another famous quote from Omar Murphy about how co-living is just like, what was it? Trendy boutique hotel. Trendy boutique hotel. Uh, one thing about that. Do you think Owen Murphy or anybody he's related to will ever live in co-living? No. Do you know what I mean? It's good enough for me, but it's not good enough for him. Sorry. I'd love to see a reality TV show where Owen Murphy moves into like a co-living space. <laughs> Cribs. Like, <laughs> I would definitely watch that. Could yeah. you imagine him in his little co-living space? Yeah. Own or own. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I'm just gonna just leave this podcast for a second to call TV3 for that uh, golden <laughs> idea that we just had. But seriously, the, you, the green wave in the local and European elections um, showed that people are obviously willing to vote for green politicians. And uh, you were you know, just about a, an unsuccessful candidate, but seemed to encapsulate this energy and newness that people really felt that there was going to be a changing of the guard happening. Um, but we've spoken before about uh, the, the, you know, is there any type of issue or area where lip service is as dominant as it is in environmental issues and the climate crisis and so on? What is the government doing right now and what uh, that you see is detrimental? And what, um, from a policy standpoint, where are the uh, divisions or the juxtapositions between what they're saying they're going to do and what they're actually doing? Um, is that on? Yeah. Um, well, you know, like like Reed was saying there, it's you know, it's never just one policy. And of course, you know, when you look at the environment, it's it, it'll touch every aspect of our lives. Um, but it's an entire ideological commitment to, you know, further growth, further privatization, further profit extraction. That, at the very root of it, I believe is incompatible with what we'll have to do to kind of <laughs> make sure we're all all right. Um, and I also think it's, you know, it's it's the same problem. It's the same problem that's driving the housing issue, the health issue. It's all the same problem that we get down to. And it's like, oh, maybe profit shouldn't decide how our lives are organized and maybe it shouldn't decide how our land is organized and how you know our cities are organized um in terms of policy like i don't want to just give out but there's rakes of bills sitting there in front of them like reed's bill like the climate emergency bill um that could be passed but instead of not being passed they're being like actively blocked and ignored um, and and actually the climate emergency bill is quite an interesting one because it really highlights that the fact that it's an ideological commitment because you know the the chance of finding gas off Ireland is extremely low the return you know you always hear oh but our energy security blah 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 um, we would still be purchasing on a free free enough on the you know European energy union market um, and so that energy security argument holds no weight. It's, there's very little, you know, the tax return, we don't get much of oil and gas fines at all. So there's very little even really good arguments for continued oil and gas, but it is just that, it is just that commitment 
to business and the prioritization of large companies above us and our families and our land and our future. Um, so there's a million things they could do tomorrow and I don't think there's any, there's no area, so there's no area where they just, you know, don't know or can't do it. It's total lack of will. You know, they could do it tomorrow if they wanted. And if oil lobbyists started saying to them, this is what we want done tomorrow, it'd probably be done tomorrow. Um, so I don't, I don't see how they'll change unless they're just gotten rid of. And I think they'll have to be because I think there's so many people who, you know, went into maybe the financial, maybe 2007, 2008 with, you know, no pension, uh, no home, um, might never have a real job, might never have anywhere to live, might never have kids because you're not going to have a kid in, your, you know, in your 42 bedroom tenement. Um, and I think that's a kind of like an ideological generation. You know, the value systems aren't tied to the financial markets anymore. And I think if that generation, if we wanted to, and if we really thought about it, um, we would just replace them and either, you know, become them or make it so difficult that they, you know, that we really practiced our democracy and they had to serve us as opposed to this weird kind of ruling but minding business kind of rela abusive relationship we have with them. We're talking a lot about the, the problems, but <coughs> this this uh, the theme is this utopia piece, like how could you imagine a future society and I'm just wondering, like, I'll go to each and every one of you, um, but Saoirse, if you were living in a benign green dictatorship... <laughs> as Delighted! <laughs> as the High Queen uh, installed uh, in, in that benign um, utopian dictatorship, which is obviously a paradox, um, and you had a certain amount of power to basically do things really, really quickly, like policy-wise, let's say, what would be your program, like a six-month program, to try and reverse some of the poor things that are happening right now? Um, I, think, I think what would need to be done, like, <laughs> I've been reading a lot recently, and I don't know how this stands, because I think I'm, you know, I might run for the general election, but in the last few weeks, I think I've become an anarchist of sorts. And I'm like, we just need to, you know, dissolve all this power down. So, and you know, you know, it's said that that can't come top down. It has to be taken. But I feel that we almost don't know that we want that power, or we don't know that it's there for us, or we don't know that we can handle it. Um, so I would start with, like, first of all, I'd nationalize anything that wasn't nailed down. And <laughs> after that, it would be um, moving them, you know, away from state-owned into worker-owned, everything like that. And then what I'd love to see brought in is a total transformation of our agricultural system. So we're no longer you know, tied to uh, milk powder markets in China, and we're no longer having to actively pursue new beef markets. Um, I would, yeah, and by nationalize everything, I mean I would nationalize the housing stock. I'd probably come up with some really clever way to get rid of property rights altogether. Um, and Everyone's going to love that. Well, <laughs> there'll be a lot of people the who would. <laughs> Join the Land League. Can you imagine a rent boycott in Dublin? It would take a week and everything, all of a sudden, things would be fixed. Can you imagine if there was a rent boycott in Dublin? 
Like, and it's, it's there. But like, we're seeing stuff like this happening in Berlin where they're putting freezes on, and there was an outcry of, like, oh my God, what about the landlords? Yeah. Uh, but, like, why can't we do this in Dublin, like, or in Ireland? Breach, how do you think about that? There's a rent control piece, which is obviously would be a key part of a utopian society is always said that it could be un unconstitutional because of the property rights, because of that, uh, the Supreme Court case in about uh, whatever it was, about 20 years ago. Sorry, Una, will you say that again? But just in terms of the, the rent control would obviously be a good part of a utopian society. Yeah. Why can't we do that? Have rent controls, proper rent controls. Yeah. Because it's the same argument. I mean, one of the first bills I actually put to the doll was for rent controls, but in order to implement them, to reverse the rent levels to what they were in 2011, because they had soared between 2011 and 2016 when the government changed. And so uh, the bill we put was quite simple. It says bring them back to 2011, bring in uh, rent control zones, and don't allow them rise by a certain amount, and also follow the models in Europe where you cannot uh, put up the rent unless you improve the property, uh, that there's, a, there's standards that you would have to adhere to, and that you're a lawbreaker as a landlord or a company if you don't do so. And again, wiped out by the government, um, although supported by other parties. Uh, look, I, you know, I'm just thinking when, when Saoirse was talking there and saying I'm becoming a bit of an anarchist, I mean, whether we're anarchist, green, or socialist, or utopian, I think we all realise that it will not be me or Saoirse or Owen Murphy sitting in Parliament that will bring about fundamental change. That will only come from people power. It only ever has come from people power. You know, what got rid of slavery? What gave women the vote? What got rid of royalty? Uh, and what got gave us repeal and, and uh, marriage equality was people power. And that's where I think we have to take our inspiration from. We have to think about a society that's well organized, that's very democratic, that's sensible, that's productive, that looks after people, because if we don't, we're fucked, basically. Uh, so we have to think about that and plan that, and there's loads and loads of different ideas, but I honestly believe the best ideas will come from the bottom up. So let's think about the health service. Who would tell us best how to reform our health service? I think it would be the nurses. I think it'd be the cleaners, the people who deliver the food, the, the, uh, the, 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 the workers at the coal face, rather than you know, a, a spokesperson for health from some party or another saying, this is what we'll do. It will be the workers, the people who deliver services that will really make the changes. How do we uh, influence art and the future of art? Ask Mungo, he'll know, you know and you, anybody else here who's an artist who, who needs to know what needs to be done to, to d democratize art and culture and make it rich and available to all and very democratic. So that sort of revolution from the bottom up is what's required. And I think uh, Saoirse and I and others can be a voice for that. But at the end of the day, it requires everybody to participate in it. Um, and that, uh, not just here in, in Leash or in Ireland, but everywhere. Because the scale of it is huge. When you look at the, you know, the Ebola crisis in the Congo or the rainforest is burning in, the, in Brazil, the scale of it is huge. But I think it's possible. I really do think it's possible and that fightbacks are happening everywhere. It's not all depressing. People are fighting back and we just need to encourage that and to collectivize it and give it a bit of oomph, you know? Yeah. Mango. Yes, Ireland. If you could take all the best bits from a festival to bring it into your utopian life, what would it be? Pie man, first off. <laughs> I am... I hope for a fine man. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Uh, the best bits from a festival. 
I think like the fact that everybody walking around here, I have no idea what you do. I have no idea how much money you make. I don't care. You're just going to see something that I like. And we're all on a lovely little bus together. It's never a question. Um, you know, people living together, getting to talk to each other, actually getting people out of their fucking houses and off their phones and dancing in the field feels somewhat human for us. You know what I mean? We've been doing this for a time. So I think that in the utopia, just get more people out, more free gigs, more we. These are our, I know it sounds mad political or whatever, but these are our streets. These are our public spaces. They're not public spaces waiting to be bought up and then somebody put some bullshit down in Dublin 8 or whatever like that. This is where we live. We own this. And people that I came from fought and died for this to be ours. So I want to see everybody out there and enjoying it. And if you think something's going to go, or you think a pub or a boozer or a club or a gallery or whatever is going to go, go out and fight for it. Go out and say, no, I want that in my neighbourhood. Do you know what I mean? That's what I think. I think what we get from festivals is you can expand your mind and go, I want to go with a load of sounders to somewhere and enjoy myself. That's what I like. <laughs> here, here. Thank you. <laughs> Um, one of the we're going to talk again more about Dublin um, Mango because one of the things that um, came out earlier this week was the plans for Dublin Eight and the Liberties and Diageo's uh, development plan um, and the kind of digitally created uh, glass yeah basically glass city glass city the new um, quarter of Dublin yeah that basically was was being um, shown in, in, in the Irish Times about the plans for Dublin Eight. And um, it looked like uh, the Docklands, and it was basically saying, you know, d d the Liberties are due for a Docklands makeover. And uh, Noel Rock, actually, from um, Fine Gael was tweeting, like, this will be great for the city. Of course, he doesn't fucking live there. But one of the things, I was talking about it to my um, girlfriend, Sarah, and she was saying, you know, some people love the Docklands. They love that aesthetic. They love, you know, the vacuous grey and the glass and, like, kind of reminds you of, like, the big bow wow opening credits and um, the little blast <laughs> from the past there. But she was saying, you know, that's grand if you like that. But I like what the Liberties look like now. Why can't I have what I like too and not have something that already exists made everywhere? And I, it really, really disturbs me about what's happening in that, in that area right now, that there's just this idea that everything just needs to be sanitized and steamrolled. But another thing uh, with regards to that, of what that kind of weird future looks like, is last week we were talking on the podcast with Philly McMahon from Pop Baby about um, gathering at nighttime and about clubbing being culture. And what you're saying right now really chimes to that. And Philly was making the point that because these um, clubs have closed down, there's less opportunity to gather. And obviously, the, you know, the building block of people power is people gathering. And he was talking about how session culture is being making us more introverted because basically instead of going out and meeting loads of random people on a night out, you're basically ensconced in your house with your friends and you're having the same kind of circular conversations. And I was wondering, as, a, as an artist and as somebody whose music comes from the nighttime and the wee hours, what do you think about what that kind of session culture is doing to us or and how it corresponds with the broader political um, culture? Yeah, uh, first off, I love a session. <laughs> I will not have, I'll not have a bad word about a session, but there's things that, you know, there are after ripple effects about it. We've seen it from every kind of government that I've ever looked at. Even, you know, back when fucking Ray was getting started, the poll tax. 
the reason they cracked down these raves wasn't allowed the kids doing yokes in the field. It was the fact that 80,000 people could get into a field and all come together and put something up and they hadn't a fucking breeze about it and they didn't need the government's help. To have us all cl- congregated together, all of a sudden some of the back goes, there's a lot of bullshit. And everyone goes, yeah. And the government are fucking scared of that because we all know we're all living through some bullshit. But we get people, we get DJs, we get artists, we get MCs and singers to then bring a message out to that. That's so important because I have been shaped politically, not just from my family, but from the music and the art that I've taken, listening to people like yourselves or even yourselves, like that art, it like the weight it has on younger people and their development and where we go as a society. If you just put them in kitchens, they're not gonna, like, as you said, there's nowhere to go. So why would you go out? You have to go home at half two. Do you know what I mean? And then you're sit- you have to go back to a gaff or else you're gonna go out to Glass Devon to some rave for 15 quid and then you get out, like, that's all we were given. If you just let people fucking dance to be grand, like. So in our final question of the Utopian Future Society, well said, by the way, Mango. <laughs> um, uh, I w- we wanna go back to the, the where we are right now, this festival setting, and ask you, what is your favorite bit of Electric Picnic so far? Breed, we'll start with you. It's your first picnic. You've popped your picnic cherry. What has been your favorite aspect of it so far? Uh, well, I'm of an age where this is like, was unimaginable when I was going to festivals as a teenager. We, they were always much smaller and much more tighter and not so, um, I suppose, overwhelming. I found it a bit overwhelming. I came last night and I didn't know my way around and I found it a bit overwhelming. But the atmosphere is beautiful and uh, people, like Mango said, are just, there you are, you're happy, you're looking, you're doing. I think that's the, the thing I'm most impressed with. Um, and the level of organization is huge. But I have to say, your fact today of the amount of electricity used that could <laughs> power 42,000 households per year, wow, that is quite shocking, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, it's quite something else. But there's a festival that was set up in Australia and it's a, I think it's called Woodfield or something, but they basically bought the plot of land and they leave all the structures up all the time. So you're not having all the energy output to rig and de-rig and all that kind of jazz. And they also build or plant trees all around the festival every year. So it's become this like really big forest as well. And it's like, why do we have to just have three days? Why can't we have a a year long festival, to be honest? Yeah, yeah. It'll be more, far more sustainable. <laughs> uh, or somebody tweeted this morning, uh, was one of the journalists tweeted, my father-in-law has just said, those poor people will get soaking wet at the ESB picnic. Saoirse, <laughs> <laughs> what's been your highlight so far? And what would you like to kind of, what's going to be your memory, do you reckon, you're going to take from this year's festival? I really like that new area down in Freetown that's all South and Central American themed. That's, that's class. Um, I thought Charlie XX was brilliant. Um, I thought Mango, I I was so impressed with you. Um, And also there was a little girl earlier, or yesterday, singing the ABCs up on the stage in Global Green and everyone was cheering afterwards and she was... (laughs) Um, But just on on festivals, I've been thinking a lot about like, what is it? Because it's not just the music and it's not just camping. And what I was thinking that people love so much about it is that sense of solidarity and community that areas like the Docklands, you know, fragment. And I think, you know, our our housing market in general and how all that centralization is going, I think people love Electric Picnic because it does 
still have that feeling of you know everyone's on the on the same page and there's a sense of community that maybe can be hard to find maybe um and how do we bring that community to cities or where we live or well towns? like what where is it all going i don't know i but i think we can like i was looking around and i was like you know you don't need a three sponsored chill and charge or whatever it is or bacardi even though it looks class <laughs> you know the bacardi stage it's it's you know we don't we don't need to we don't need companies to show us all those things or to give us that feeling but it kind of feels like we do doesn't it like but like, like if you think about for art from the very start of time was always uh financed by people or brands so i like i don't mind brands you hate them uh not that you hate brands you hate them no sponsoring i, I things, hate like them all yes <laughs> brands like make things happen so like if you don't have the financial support it it holds things back i so think that people yeah, make things happen i think that's what this is one my thing myself and andrea <laughs> disagree on every hour of our lives i think that's a fiction like i think yeah. that you know we're we're told about the medicines yeah but we're t we're told that like all that there has to be a financial input to build something but we know that that's not true I don't think there has to be, but I think it makes things better if there's financial support behind things that are good. I also think brands make a mistake by Crap. by putting <laughs> themselves front and center. Like it would be far smarter for, like let's say at Glastonbury, for example, which obviously like there's huge competition over who's going to like who's going to be the cider brand this year but none of the bars are branded or anything like that because there's a bit more sophistication i do think that irish corporate companies just you know it's the classic thing like make the logo bigger and i <laughs> do think that irish brands and agencies that work with those brands really have a lack of sophistication in terms of what they're presenting visually um i kind of think i it's blame smurf at business school every brand manager <laughs> that came out of there they're literally like in bits <laughs> And finally, Mango, what's been your highlight of, of the weekend? I'm guessing it was your show yesterday, which was yeah, astonishing. Yeah, last night was pretty cool, man. Yeah, get to take my top off and share with a lot of people <laughs> in the middle of a woods with my best mate on stage. Yeah, that was my highlight. Uh, also, Tara's set and Cass McCarty was banging. Big Woo! shout out to me board there. Uh, and this, yeah, I don't know, just seeing all my friends and getting to have loaded conversations, you know? Making new friends. Making <laughs> new friends forever. On that utopian note, thank you so much to our three amazing panelists, Sirsha, Breed, and Mango. You are free to leave the stage and have some sponsored gin and tonics. Thank you so much. Woo Another round of applause. Each week on United Ireland is the highly anticipated item of Andrea's called Get in the Sea, where she chooses something to do one, jog on, and get in the sea. Andrea, what's getting in the sea this week? Do you know what's getting in the sea? We're at a festival, we're having a ball, we're bopping around, and then suddenly one o'clock comes and the bars close and you are wandering around with not a bit of lubrication in your mouth. Like, why are we being infantilized if I want to buy a drink, let me buy a drink. I think we need to put the licensing laws of Ireland in the sea. Well said. Lubricate my mouth. <laughs> Again, well said. <laughs>
Um, also every week on United Ireland, we talk about our fave bits, which loosely translate as our cultural highlights of the week. But considering this is all about Leash and the festival, we're going to hit you with our fave bits, a picnic special. My fave bits uh, were yesterday Christine and the Queens, an amazing performance, phenomenal artist. Mango and Mathman set at Body and Soul. The energy was absolutely crazy. Their debut album, Casual Work, is coming out soon. Get on it. I also uh, very much enjoyed um, Pillow Queens with Salty Dog. I do love the Salty Dog stage um, as a closeted pirate. <laughs> what are your fave bits, Andrea? My fave bits are the fact that I would love a memory because I can't actually remember very many of them. But I did love, I, like I'm a little raver at heart, so Davy B did some Ibiza classics. So I got my rave on, Ted Snake was fab. And they're in Heineken. And then Mango and Matt Man was lit to the tit. It was like, I literally couldn't cope. And I also couldn't cope with people, like the mosh pit was out of control. It was so lit. What has been your favorite memory from Electric Picnic over the years? I think it all kind of blends into one memory. <laughs> <laughs> make yolks of fiber. Uh, but uh, it's just the new friends you make. I literally am like making new friends all the time. I just, I'm just so popular. No, uh, it's just so nice to have that connection outside your own so social circle. And I think it just, you're so used to having your gang or your pals and you all kind of agree on the same things. And then you're at a festival and you're like meeting new people and they're kind of agree with you most of the time. But like, it's just the new connections. I just, I just love some touching. Excellent. For me, festivals are kind of my habitat, I think. They're definitely my happy place. I feel really bereft if I don't um, end up in a field like not very clean, kind of like fur on my teeth, uh, finding a warm mm. can. It's just such a good vibe. <laughs> really selling them there. But um, I do. I haven't been to the picnic last year, so i um, enjoying being back and seeing all the, um, the new area and all that kind of stuff. I it's haven't seen it yet. Well, you'll probably see it tonight, hopefully. Day hopefully. three, and I've literally seen like five steps. <laughs> um, but I made loads of new friends, so it's fine. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please support us on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash United Ireland, where we scrape the funds together to bring you a different county every week. And that's about the lot from us. We want to really thank everybody here at Minefield, Nisha, Dylan Haskins, the sound guy, all of the crew and the team putting everything together, all of the festival picnic heads, uh, the festival picnic, electric picnic heads, really working on day three here, so I'm really getting it together. Everybody who came and listened to us, thank you so much. The podcast is normally produced by Andrew Mang and Castaway Media, but today it's the fantastic crew here at the Ahair podcast stage in Minefield. Um, in the podcast crew is Susie Bennett. Crystal Clear gave us his uh, amazing tuna chicken roll for our soundtrack. Sarah Fox was all our design. Breed, Saoirse, Mango have been amazing. Mary White and Willie White, two absolute bosses. You have been an amazing audience. Thank you so much for being here and listening and have a great bloody festival. <laughs> Let's get lit. <laughs>